From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. I dig around the Chronicle archive and nothing brings me to a happy place like running into the 1982 49ers photos shot by Fred Larson and Mike Maloney. I remember their work so distinctly, being 11 years old and reading the Sporting Green or the Chronicle front page, and when I see a photo of Joe Montana or Ronnie Lott from that era, even though it's 35 years later, it's like no time has passed. That's how I feel about Carlos Avila Gonzalez and Scott Strazante and their Warriors photography. I know I'm never going to forget their work, including specific images from the current Warriors championship era. So I invited them to the Big Event Basement Archive Studio to talk about what it's like on the other side of the lens. There are so many good stories in this episode, including when I asked Carlos and Scott if a player has ever fallen on them in a game. <laughs> well, you know, we actually covered the Kings playoffs back in the early 2000s, I believe it was, when they were playing the Lakers. And um, just having Vladi Divac almost fall on you it was like watching a redwood go down, and it was uh, it was pretty <laughs> terrifying. Twice, <laughs> I've had a errant pass hit the front of my camera and jam the the, the metal hot shoe adapter thing for your flash into my face, and so I have matching scars above my my uh, nose. And in the playoffs, I think it was 2015 playoffs, the first game, first quarter that happened, and I'm just like gushing blood, and I had to go. And this they 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 kind of. You know, they, they bandaged me up and I went back out on the court, you know, like nice. Willis Reed coming back out on the court. We talk about how they fell in love with photography, how much they interact with the players. And I also asked Scott about his book of street photography, shooting from the hip. And I asked Carlos about the house he's building in Oakland. Yes, Carlos is building a house and shooting the Warriors. I'm Peter Hartlob and this is The Big Event. Scott and Carlos, welcome to the big event. Hey, Peter, good to be here. Welcome to your uh, your workplace, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm actually really thrilled you guys are coming here. I've been wanting to do this um, even before I started the podcast. Um, I wanted to get my colleagues on, and um, I love having these conversations about our jobs. And you guys have, like, the coolest job. You do a lot of different things, but you both, I know you because you shoot the Warriors, and um, I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about that. And uh, um, but first, I'm going to go Barbara Walters on you. Mm-hmm. And and could we go to could we go to like childhood first sporting event you photographed or shot a photo at? If you want to pass on that, you can do first photo you took. <laughs> Honestly, I think my first photo that I took was an oil spill in Martinez when I was a kid. I had just gotten a camera, but sporting wise, I. I you know, I used to work at a uh, concession stand at the athletic fields in the recreational uh, recreation area at the, the downtown waterfront in Martinez. And I just bought a camera and was playing around with it and just shot a bunch of the softball players, you know, the uh, slow-pitch softball players. So I was just kind of getting to know my camera. It was um, a lot of fun, and back then it was all manual and, you know, one frame at a time. And it's such a completely different world than what we're doing today. I, I, I want to go back to the oil spill because that's badass. <laughs> yeah. It's like that's a very good origin story right. for a photographer who's, you know, going out and covering some disasters. Uh, yeah, it was it was just me kind of like I just gotten the camera and there happened to be like at the marina. There's you know the Shell Oil refinery or all the uh, all the other refineries out there. I don't want to lay this on on Shell's feet because they might come calling later. Yeah. But um, 
they were just you know cleaning up after a um, uh, an oil release, and I just was out there with my camera, took some pictures. And I still have the negatives; I could go back and uh, and find them. But uh, yeah, it was just kind of an unusual thing. I just you know was taking it for a walk, and you know that's what I saw. Did you did it like bite you then? I mean, it, it, and I, I know it's not that easy. I don't have some origin story as a as a writer, but at the time, you know, was there something about it that kind of hooked you even then? You know, I, I had actually been really drawn to photography my whole life. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I wanted to have a camera in my hand. I mean, whenever we took family photos and, you know, the portraits and the the birthday celebrations and whatever, uh, my parents would always break out the little Instamatic 126 that everybody had. And I actually still have it up in my locker here at work. I brought it to work one day to see if I can get it to, to you know, function again. But um, I always just wanted to be the one who took pictures. And it was just something that fascinated me. And um, you know, I grew up watching, like every kid in the uh, 70s grew up watching uh, Eight is Enough, where Tommy was the photographer in the family and had the dark room, and, you know, it was kind of a fascinating thing. And, you know, shortly afterward, I started working at a at the local newspaper. Um, my first job was actually when I was about eight years old at the Martinez News Gazette, which is, you know, this ancient paper that's been the third longest published pa- paper in California. And I was just kind of like I would sweep up and bundle papers and, you know, kind of like get stuff ready for the delivery people the next day. And the best part about it was I got to kind of like, you know, sneak into the darkroom and look around and see what was going on going on in there. And it just fascinated me. I mean, everything, you know, the um, from the morgue, you know, which is where the old newspapers go. I would like, you know, open up, crack these hundred year old volumes and read about the 1906 earthquake. And it just it just that's when I got bitten was, you know, the ability to kind of go back and see that journalism was, you know, still relevant. I I know that feeling. And Mm -hmm. when I come down here, you know, I'm really involved. I try to be proactive about the digital part of my job. Mm -hmm. But I find this to be a really good bridge to it because you can do multimedia projects with old things and it's telling the reader, you know, yeah, we're the same paper. We have that hook to history, but we're going forward into the future too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And thank you for the eight is enough reference as the pop culture (laughs) critic. Um, You're um, definitely courting my favor. Scott, what about you? I grew up in a sports crazy family on the south side of Chicago and we would go to a lot of professional sporting events. And my dad was the photographer of the family, but at some point I kind of took over that mantle and I would bring 35 millimeter camera to the game with a wide angle lens and try to shoot action from the stands. And I had this whole album of photos that I took from the stands where I would get the prints made and then I'd cut out the tiny one by one inch frame of action and put it in a a photo album. And so I'd have like 70 photos all on one page because they were so small. And I think the highlight of my youth was I won an honorable mention in the Bank of Evergreen Park photo contest for a Chicago White Sox play at second. And I remember it was Brett Butler of the Indians sliding into second, second, and I think I titled it The Butler Did It, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, that was like the highlight. And that's I think that's kind of when I started thinking of it as a career because before that I was just a fan of sports, and I had Sports Illustrated covers on my wall and I kind of learned sports photography I think by osmosis by just kind of looking at them every day um, but yeah like I kind of started at, to- at the top well not that Chicago sports is the top but at least it was you know professional sports back then so Soldier Field and Old Comiskey Park and Wrigley Field and the Chicago Stadium was amazing so I think you know growing up in Chicago which is a huge sports town and all the celebrities in Chicago are sports figures I think that's where I kind of you know fell in love with 
with sports first, but then sports photography second. W- was it a family thing too? I mean, yes. going to well, these games yes. was sports a big part of your? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And we would even travel. We would, you know, for some reason we went to the, I think it was the '84 All Star Game at Candlestick Baseball All Star Game, and we went to an All Star Game in L.A. I went to a couple Super Bowls. It was just my family. Just for some reason, just loved going to live sporting events and. You know, coming from the south side of Chicago, was, you know, seen, I think it was kind of unusual for the people, a very working-class neighborhood, but but we just were really into sports and had Bears and White Sox season tickets for many, many years. Yeah. And just, you know, you know, a lot of losses, but it was fun. Well, I, I, that's a good segue, I think, to my first question about shooting professional photography now and being so close and having what is viewed as such a great gig. I'm wondering if you're able to enjoy it kind of on the same level. Um, if you can enjoy the sports part of it, or is it a job? And I was hoping we could start there. Yeah, well, for me, it's, you know, it's kind of like what the athletes say, where they say in the middle of a play, they tune everything out and they don't hear any crowd noise, where I kind of feel the same way when I'm photographing Steph Curry hitting a three-pointer, you know, and then coming back down the court celebrating. I really don't hear anything. I'm concentrating on the moment. And so it's kind of weird. You kind of get in that zone. And, and sometimes I'll photograph a moment and, you know, it seems very easy to capture a certain play. But then I'll see a highlight on TV and be like, man, that, that really was really moving fast. You know, but everything seems to slow down when you're looking through the viewfinder. And, and it's really kind of a fascinating thing where, you know, there have been times, too, where I'd stand on the sideline of an NFL football game and it's so fast but when you're looking through the camera, it seems to be a lot slower. So I'm not sure exactly why that is. But yeah, like I do, I don't, I don't really, you know, have a, an allegiance to a team when I'm photographing because even if it's like my, see, the Chicago White Sox are my favorite team. And when I photograph them in the World Series, if I would photograph a moment in the first inning that was, was better for the opposing team, then I would kind of root for the opposing team so my photo was significant. I would put my own fan allegiance aside. But then after the game, you know, after they won the World Series in 2005, a couple days later, I started watching some of it and I got really emotional. But when I was there, I didn't feel any of those emotions. So I, I definitely have a separation between my professional side and my fandom side. And, you know, I am a fan of the Warriors, but not when I'm shooting them, only kind of when I'm not working. It occurs to me, Carlos, that you probably grew up if not rooting actively for the Warriors, definitely, you know, knowing people who did. and Yeah, I mean, I knew a lot of fans growing up, but I myself was never really a big sports fan. My family was not really, you know, like Scott's really involved with going to games. Um, you know, we were, uh, you know, the only sport that I did play as uh, as a kid, I mean, was orga- in an organized manner, was, uh, was judo. I mean, I was really kind of not into football. Um, my parents, you know, were not, they wanted us to kind of look, Play, play pickup soccer, that kind of thing, because, you know, it was just a different, you know, world for us. I mean, my parents were both born and raised in Mexico, so coming here was kind of a different experience. And when we got here, they wanted us to be more academic and be involved with, um, with you know, getting good good grades and being at, at good schools. And, you know, as I still hear it to this day, when I ever t- I tell people that I went to De La Salle High School, I'm a big guy if anybody's seen me out on the court side. But De La Salle's got that that record of football <laughs> dominance, and every time they see me, they're like, "Did did, did you play football?" And I, <laughs> and I hate to break their heart because I tell them no. And the coaches all, you know, kind of, you know, try to recruit me at one point. But I was, um, you know, really more drawn to photography and kind of being involved with the sports um, in terms of you know covering it and doing that in high school. And um, 
you know, it's like I got a uh, trial, um, a baptism by fire, pardon me, if uh, if you will. When I was uh, doing my internship at uh, the Phoenix Gazette, it was um, the Suns versus the Bulls, and that was the third straight game that or championship that the Bulls won. And actually, uh, not knowing at all what to do in terms of shooting as an intern, I um, I jumped the uh, security line um, at the end of the game when the Bulls were celebrating, and raced out onto the court. Which um, I had a credential, but it wasn't like you know. I think they nobody saw me do it, and I rushed up behind. I think it was uh, even Walter Yost was out there on the court, held my hand up above uh, my camera up above his, and got a shot of Jordan celebrating. He was palming the ball with one hand and was sticking up three fingers with the with the other hand, and it was a great moment. Except that I cut off the top three, the tips of his three fingers because it was a hail mary. I had no <laughs> oh, way of no. knowing. Yeah, but it was just one of those things where it was like all of a sudden there was this huge rush and a real, you know. Um, great like experience, but I still hadn't really kind of figured out the whole role of what I had to do at that point. So it was it was a learning experience. Let's put it that way. So I, I want to get into kind of almost like the rules because I don't think people understand, or, or I don't even understand what what the rules are. I mean, what time do you get there? Where are you allowed to shoot? Well, you know, um, I do a lot of the the multiple camera remote. Um, uh, photos that uh, Peter was mentioning, and a lot of that means setting up setup time takes a lot more. There's safety issues involved with getting the equipment up long before the players are even out on the court. So the players come out roughly at 3:30 and start practicing warm-ups. And you have to be really careful about getting all your stuff done because you don't want a ladder on the court when they're trying to warm up. They might get injured, or if you drop a piece of equipment, they might, you know, it might hit them. Or you L- know, let's explain remote equipment. What, sure. What What are you setting up? Sure. So all around the arena, I set up a, a camera camera on a set of support arms that um, the camera is then has a remote radio receiver attached to it. That receiver is paired with a transmitter that's on my live camera, the one I'm holding. And so whenever I take a picture with my live camera of the action going on, it sends a signal to the receiver on the other camera, and that triggers at almost the same time. And if you work it out correctly and everything works well, you, you can have, you know, m- photos from, of the same exact moment from multiple angles. So those cameras have to be, you know, mounted in a way like behind the, behind the glass of the backboard um, in such a way that they will not come loose, will not wobble, will not, you know, um, become a danger to the players or to the officials. And so they're up there uh, clamped and then safety cabled and everything is, you know, checked rigidly. You know, we're very careful about making sure everything is, is up there tight. Um, and on occasion, I'll also go up into the catwalks of the arena and set up a camera hanging out over one of the catwalks. So this one's particularly dangerous. If, if you've ever been, um, if you've ever looked up in the arena, you'll see that it's about 100 feet up. And if you have equipment that slips or falls or whatever, uh, you know, for it to fall 100 feet, it could do some real damage to somebody. So, On a $250 million player. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we're very careful to do all of that before any of the players come out, even when there's, you know, um, one or two players where we avoid doing that. You have multiple cameras. I'm imagining you, like, with, I don't, I don't know, do they move? Um, no, these are actually fixed. They're fixed. Yeah. But I still... Like imagine you almost like like playing defender with your, you know, with a bunch of different buttons and your camera. There's a lot of multitasking. There is, and and that's w- one way I do it is that if there's different cameras that are focused on different parts of the court, like let's say I have a camera focused on the 
warrior's basket, or I have two maybe, then I will have my cameras that shoot close, like the, the handheld cameras that I use to shoot the, the you know, the, the closest action. I'll have those on a different channel than the ones that I shoot across the court with. Yeah. And then I'll even set up a camera for, like, celebration. So if there's something that, like, I want to get with, you know, maybe if there's a... Um, you know, a celebration on the bench, I set up a camera pointing at the bench and then have that on a different channel altogether. But uh, I actually, you know, one time there was a guy from, I believe he was Sports Illustrated, who didn't even use live cameras on the court. He just had four remotes for the four different cameras he had up around the arena. And he would just literally play with it like a like a Game Boy. Yeah. He'd just pick up a remote and shoot this one, shoot that one. And it was like, you know, really weird to me to see that. Yeah, well, it, you don't have much place to go at a Warriors game. You're pretty much locked into your photo position, and they like they'll they'll huddle up down this big hallway towards the locker room. They game the game. You really can't go there. After the game, there's a little more latitude. You can kind of be in the tunnel when they're coming out and they high five the fans. Um, and so it's like the Warrior security guards are very active, and so they're very controlling. Now, what I like is. Um, in the playoffs, we'll travel on the road, and you have so much more ability on the road to make behind-the-scenes photos. Um, I was in Portland and San Antonio and Cleveland last year, and I was able to make some really amazing behind-the-scenes photos because the security guards at the home arena don't care about the Warriors. They're there protecting the home team. And so I think my best kind of behind-the-scene moments have always been on the road. During the 24-game winning streak in, in 2016, I went on a road trip, and I was in Milwaukee and Boston and Indianapolis, and I was able to get some really nice stuff because I'm the only photographer there shooting the Warriors. And, and so that's when I think I was able to get the real good ones. But there's no locker room access until after the finals, and even then you can't go in until like 10 minutes after, and there's really nothing going on. Um, so I love shooting pro sports, but sometimes I prefer shooting the lower levels because then you do have that locker room access. I covered Cardinal Newman High School um, football team in the playoffs this year, and I was able to go everywhere the team was. I could go in the locker room at any time. I could stand in the middle of the bench. And so sometimes, you know, we get that freedom to move around. But there's still nothing better than shooting a Super Bowl or an NBA Finals or a, a Stanley Cup Final. You know, those are the pinnacle of sports and and and. and I would prefer to do that, but you do get a little bit um, disgusted with the lack of access at times. Yeah, especially with the Super Bowl. I mean, they lock it down, and you can't even, you know, walk in certain parts of the of the stadium, like at Levi's when we when we covered the Super Bowl here. You couldn't even walk in areas that you're always allowed to walk throughout the rest of the season. They they lock it down. But um, one thing that I found is if there's a championship like on your on your home court, which we haven't had a lot of, um, or a big event. You know, mm. on 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 you know at home arenas, um, it's good to have that you know that kind of familiarity with some of the guards because they're actually they see you every day, they know who you are, they high five you or whatever, they welcome you in like you're part of the family. And you know, because Scott and I cover them so often, we're kind of the faces of the chronicle for a lot of people who go to the games, know who we are, and especially the the guards. And you know, you build up a good relationship with them, and they're able to. To work with you and you know sometimes you can squirt by um you know around them they'll give you like a couple minutes of access that's that's more than everybody else gets and you know i remember when i shot tim lincecum's no hitter here against uh, the padres i believe it was mm -hmm. um you know everybody loves lincecum and you know i 
just happened to you know be able to come out down here and photograph that. And you know, typically they don't let anybody into the locker room, like Scott was saying. But because we have that relationship with you know the organizations, they know who we are. I kind of just like you know shyly held my camera up at the at their press person. I'm not sure if he's there anymore. But because we have that relationship, he's like he just kind of waved me in, and so we had you know great pictures of them inside, which you know everybody else had to wait a few minutes to get in. And there's a you know there's a certain amount of like you know um, pride that I was able to have that access. But it comes from developing really good relationships with a lot of the professional organizations here. And also uh, Raymond Ritter and the PR staff of the Warriors are fantastic. Yes. They're the best PR staff by a mile I've ever worked with, and they give us great access. They let us go to, like, you know, I photographed Clay Thompson walking his dog, yeah. you know, you know, I've been at Steph Curry's house, you know, just things, you know, you know, the players are not that engaged, and they're just like, oh, another photographer. But, but they give you, they put you in places that other outlets normally don't get in. The Chronicle does get a lot of, I think, extra favor. Raymond um, Ritter is. I've I've notch. worked with him yes. too, yeah. and um, and he's up all night and in the morning. I mean, you send a text at 10 a.m. or 6 a.m. and he returns it. I think he's like a Terminator sent from the future, <laughs> except instead of to commit a murder, he was just right, sent yeah. here to like be the best, most complete PR guy. Yeah, yeah um, during the NBA Finals last year, I was at an upper position. I was way up, out of the way, and all of a sudden, halfway through the second quarter, Raymond pops up. It's like, hey, how you doing? Everything okay up here? I'm like, yeah, great. Yeah. Thanks, Raymond. And it's like, okay. I have a great Raymond story. I was actually out to a dinner with um, a friend, one of our freelancers, Noah Berger, and we were at um, some steakhouse in Walnut Creek and just kind of totally random. We're out on the sidewalk waiting for Noah's car to be brought around and up walking on the sidewalk comes Raymond Ritter and he's on his phone checking his messages <laughs> and he didn't see us and as soon as he got within about 10 feet I said, hey, can I get a few minutes with Curry a little bit later? <laughs> <laughs> and he looked up and I think that the the words started a different process in his head and so he was like ready to kind of like respond to that request <laughs> and then he noticed it was me and we were laughing and he started to, to laugh it was really funny what, what about the players do they know who you are um carlos you're at home depot you run into draymond does he say mm. hey carlos <laughs> or does he say what's up or does he just walk by you i mean do, do, you, you're around them so much i i would they yeah, we, we tend to not see them much on, you know, just off days when they're doing their thing because, I mean, they they live in different places, different they have different lifestyles. And, um, you know, but they do recognize us on the court. They're, they know when we're, you know, what we're doing, what we're working on. During the, you know, pregame, you know, introductions, they're, they, you know, like I used to get high-fived by, um, what's his name, one of our former... Uh, Festus, I think it was. Or, Azili. Yeah. yeah, Festus Azili. Um, and then, you know, it's like, Sometimes they'll, you know, they'll, you know, they're more comfortable like being physical with you because you've been there so long, and they know like when I when I did their portraits this year during media day, you know, there, there's a little bit more of a you know, you know, warm rapport going on rather than just this you know kind of like oh hey I'm from Force Illustrated I'm taking your picture line up there put on you know this thing and you know it's not this mechanical thing there's more of a kind of an, an, an understanding that that you're a local guy and they and they work with you yeah Scott yeah all the players. Are, are really friendly and they might be faking it, but they're all they've all been raised well and you <laughs> both by their families and by the PR staff at the Warriors. So even you know if you're in a situation with them, they're really kind. I, I, I've been kind of following Jordan Bell, the rookie around and he is amazing. He is really like a super great guy and 
um, really fun to be around. And and it's weird. It's like I feel like I kind of become friends more with their entourages. Um, one of his buddies, Shelly, lives with them. And so, like, Shelly knows me, and Shelly will say hi. And so I think, you know, the other guys are – the players sometimes are a little – they have so much interaction with the media that they kind of tune it out. But it seems like kind of the people surrounding the players, sometimes they get to know you, and that, that comes in to an advantage at times. But, but I don't want to get to know the players. You know, for me, it's like I – you know, then I might start feeling bad if I photograph them injured on the ground or, 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 or negative photos. So, you know, I, I do appreciate them being, you know, friendly, but it's at a certain point having a distance is good too. How, how close have you come to having um, someone land on you? And oh, what it happens player? a lot. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Tell me about that. Um, <laughs> well, you know, we actually covered the Kings playoffs back in the early 2000s, I believe it was, when they were playing the Lakers. And um, just having... Vladi Divac almost fall on you. It was like watching a redwood go down, and it was uh, it was pretty <laughs> terrifying. He actually landed right up against my knees and just bumped me enough to kind of like shock me a little bit. But and luckily I had a wide angle lens because to get the shot of him holding his face and you know he I think the um, Kings were were behind at that point and um, it's a little bit terrifying. But I've had Lamar Odom hit me. Um, you know I've had players kind of have to jump over me. And, you know, one of the things that the NBA has done recently is create these spaces within the shooting line where the photographers are on, on the baseline of the court. And so they have more, you know, more, um, you know, space to kind of like a safety safety lane, basically. But, yeah, it's it, sometimes you just have to put your hands up and hope that you can catch them when they're falling because otherwise you're going to get a, a face full of a really sweaty guy. I'm, I'm imagining now this turning into, like, that scene in Jaws where Dreyfus and Shaw start showing their, like, shark injuries well, to see, each other. See, so see Scott, that's me. I'm, your... I'm a basketball magnet because okay. <laughs> twice I've had a errant pass hit the front of my camera and jam the, the, the metal hot shoe adapter thing for your flash into my face and so I have matching scars above my my uh, nose and in the playoffs I think it was 2015 playoffs the first game first quarter that happened and I'm just like gushing blood and I had to go and this they they, they kind of you know they, they bandaged me up and I went back out on the court you know like nice. Willis Reed coming back out on the court and you know and so I photographed the game with a big bandage on my face and then I went to the hospital and they glued my you know, my forehead back together. But you finished your job. I finished my job. That's so right. that's happened twice in my career. And but it's kind of I've one on the right side and one on the left side. They they kind of match. And that's basketball. It wow. is. Yeah. Basketball is actually I get hurt more in basketball than any sport. And it's mostly from the ball. <laughs> I took a lot of flack for taking a dive once on those sidelines of a football game. Um, because there was a player who was running right at me and he was gonna hit me hard. And I made a decision that I wasn't about to be the guy that, that Jerry Rice hit on his way out the sidelines that crippled him for the rest of his career. <laughs> so I, I took the personal load of shame that um, all my friends threw upon me to uh, just to, you know, make sure that Jerry Rice was okay. So well, yeah, You're a big guy, though. You could have dropped a shoulder <laughs> and, you know. Yeah, but at that level, we're on our knees, so that would have been right at his knee. So it Yeah, <laughs> not good. All right, well, thank <laughs> no. you. I enjoyed Jerry Rice's sure. career as a fan, and I appreciate you sure. <laughs> taking the dive. Great stories. Thank you. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, Scott, about, and I can't believe we've gone this far without mentioning it, but you covered the Jordan Bulls. Yes. And how was that different and how was that the same? Yeah, well, both of them are circuses. So, you know, they kind of go to you know, away cities and it's like the ticket, you know, and, and the fans are, are, they hate them, but they can't stop watching them. 
Um, the similarities are both the Bulls and the Warriors seem to be able to just kind of turn it on and turn it off. And Jordan's Bulls were always losing in the third quarter, and they would do what the Warriors do. Okay, we're going to play for 12 minutes now, and we're going to win the game. And so that was the similarity. They just seem to be able to kind of control when they turn on and turn it off. The differences are where the vast majority of the Bulls were assholes. They, were, they weren't <laughs> nice. They didn't pretend to be nice. You know, Dennis Rodman would actively try to kick you in the nuts if he could. You know, he was he would target photographers. And, you know, Phil Jackson was cranky all the time and Jordan was in his own space. So the Warriors are all sweethearts. So so that's a huge difference. But but, you know, it was amazing covering both of them. Uh, but back in the, the Jordan days, it was a different world, though. There was so much more access. Carl, Carlos talking about putting a remote up in the ceiling of uh, Oracle, back in 92 finals, what we would do is we'd just climb up into the rafters and there was this big five by five foot hole overlooking the basket and we'd just stand there and kind of lean over. What stopped you from like slipping and your camera dropping uh, in the yeah, middle of the NBA finals? Dumb lux, you know, that was it. It was <laughs> super dangerous and I could uh, not yeah, believe that. Basically what you would do is there was an electrician and you'd find him, you say, hey, can I have the key? And there was a door in this bathroom and you'd just open it up and you'd walk up and, and you'd just kind of walk around during the game. And, and this was, you know, wasn't that long ago it was the early 90s and but now it's like you you know you could not do that so well that sounds insane yeah yeah it was it was <laughs> insane and the chicago stadium the bulls played there the, i think first couple years of their championship run and the locker rooms were downstairs and there were these steps that would come up and you could walk down there and walk anywhere and you know it was definitely a different world access wise even though there was two to three times the amount of photographers on the court back then than there are now there still was a, a greater ability to kind of wander around and, and do things that you can't do anymore. How was Jordan? You know, he just kind of, you know, wouldn't even, didn't even know you existed. You yeah. know, he was so competitive and so focused and, you know, would cut his mother to win a, you know, a card game. You know, he just, he wanted to win at everything. And, you know, he was, he's by far the, you know, the most amazing athlete I've ever focused, uh, focused, photographed. And, uh, you know, it, it would be, you know, people always say, you know, they do this Warriors-Bulls matchup. Um, I, I just can't see Jordan losing no matter what. He would cheat, it, cheat his way to victory if he had to. <laughs> like, he, yeah. like, you know, one of his greatest shots at the end of the, his, the sixth championship where he just kind of what, pushes Brian Russell out of the way yeah. and, and scores, you know. So that, that was kind of Jordan. But, but I love shooting Curry, too. Curry doesn't make a bad photograph, and, and he's always emoting. The, the Bulls didn't really, they weren't as emotional, and they didn't celebrate mm-hmm. as much as the Warriors do which wasn't, wasn't as good. But, you know, the thing about shooting those teams is you get a photo of Stephen Curry or Michael Jordan just standing there, and it's a great photo, you know, where if you're shooting the, you know, whatever, the, the Brooklyn Nets, and you get a photo of their random player, it wouldn't be a very good photo. But every Warriors player makes a great photo, and every Bulls player made a great photo just standing there. So when you get a great photo of them doing something, you know, emotional or, or action-wise, that makes it even greater. So it, it's easier to photograph the Warriors and make a good photo than than the, the Oakland A's. You know, so it's it's just because there's a significance and a and a, a you know a gravitas to the to the team. And I will say about the Warriors is that they're a very um, they're a very happy team. I mean, they just love to play. You can see it. I mean, just everybody's having a good time, and there's this great um, camaraderie out on the court. Um, even when they bring in the, the the young guys, when you've got guys like you know KD and Draymond, you know, giving Jordan Bell a little you know head bump because he did a good a good thing, mm-hmm. you know, these are superstars who are like you know 
really kind of helping these young guys, you know, really have an appreciation and love for the game. And it's it's almost universal on that bench. All of them, everybody they've had for the past few years has been somebody who's who's been a a contributor and somebody who who really buys into that you know, that, that, that great game philosophy. Yeah, on the other hand, Jordan would punch Steve Kerr in the face during practice, you know, so it was a <laughs> you know, totally different world. Right. Well, I wanted to ask you about just the last few years, and um, I think, like, if I ran into Fred Larson right now, which I hope to have him on the podcast sometime, he'd tell me some stories about, you know, 81, 82 to 85 Niners. What are the stories you're going to be telling 25 years from now? Wow, yeah, that's so a tough many. one. There's yeah. so many. Yeah, and I've been shooting the Warriors for 20 years since I've been here. Um, and, you know, I've shot the, the Jordan Bulls too, but only when they were in town. That was our, <laughs> yeah. our mandate was, you know, we used to shoot the Warriors just to shoot the team that was actually coming in. But, you know, to me, seeing um, seeing how this team really came together, I mean, especially when when they were just on the verge of kind of going to the to – the, um, Western Conference Finals, I think back in 2012, I believe, or 2013. Um, you know, and then when they played the the Clippers in that final game seven, just the emotion, just those things where they're just about to to really kind of, you know, make their impact. Those are the moments that I'm kind of, you know, I saw that as the tipping point of what the Warriors were. You know, they won it in 2015, but I think the f- couple of years leading up to that were really significant when they were playing like the great Spurs teams or, you know, playing the Clippers when they were, you know, kind of more equally um, enabled, so to speak. But, um, I don't know, just seeing Curry, you know, develop into this phenomenon. And, you know, we've seen it on a slow, gradual, step-by-step basis, so it's not like one day you wake up and he's magnificent. You know, shooting him when he first got here, he was like the kid who had the bad ankles, you know, and he was just, you know, then watching the trade of Monte Ellis and, you know, getting Bogut, who was, you know, an unknown quantity. I mean, all those things really played into kind of what they became by 2015. But, um, you know, just seeing them develop as as a really solid team and good people. Yeah, I moved here from Chicago in 2014, and I remember going to Media Day in before the 2015 season. I didn't know. I really didn't know who anyone was. I, I kind of knew who Steph Curry was, and I remember Clay Thompson. You know, was I think he was on the Olympic team, and I kind of remember people talking about him. Um, Draymond Green. I had no idea who he was. I, I recall when he would come into games. I'm like, ugh, who's this guy? You know, because you know I, he wasn't starting at the time. I think David Lee was starting in, in, ahead of him. So I really had no idea who any of the players even were. And and then they won the NBA championship that that year, which was amazing. And But I think the, the highlight is always capturing a significant moment that kind of, you know, photographically that goes down, you know, in history. And, um, you know, there, there, you know, I think, you know, for me, like, I have this really photo, photo I like a lot of Curry after he hit his 400 three-pointer. And there's a sign up in the stand that says 400. And there was some little bit of a flash in the corner, which kind of created this rainbow lens flare that went lens flare that went right onto Curry. It was kind of this kind of cool thing that came all together. And you know, there were a couple of Draymond Green shots that that I have that were significant and um, like blocking a, a shot in the playoffs last year. And I think that I one. I know they, the exact shot yeah, you're talking actually, about. It, he's he's right there and he's got this look on his face. Yeah. You know, and it, 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 I think it was against Portland, and, and they ended up blowing the photo up and giving it to Draymond. You know, so it's like on his wall, which is cool. Yeah. You know, and so when you make those moments that, you know, our job is to photograph, get a great photo of the play of the game. And you want to match Connor Letourneau's lead in his story. And if, if he's writing about your photo 
then you've done your job because that's what our job is, is to, you know, it's easy to make a, a great action photo, but to make a great action photo of the play of the game is what we're there for. And I, I think consistently, not to brag, I think Carlos and I consistently get those moments. And I think that's why, you know, that even though we are having fun out there, you know, we kind of are tuned into what the moments are while, while they're happening. And, and going back to what we were talking about earlier about whether we enjoy watching the game, it can be nerve-wracking sometimes. I mean, it can be really, you know, the pace of the game, and you're so focused on what's going on in front of you. And we're watching the game basically through a, I mean, if you were to take a roll of paper towels and and look at the game through that kind of a little telescope, that's how much of the game we're actually getting to watch. So we don't see the players cutting around other players and creating these, you know, opportunities. So, you know, you're seeing it from a different perspective. I mean, I've actually gone home after cleaning up all my remotes at midnight and watching the game again from a whole different, from a fan perspective, because you just don't know how something developed. You have to be on everything, you know, it's nerve wracking because you don't, you sometimes you can't even see what's going on. And, you know, it's, um, I have a multitude, I mean, thousands of photos of uh, being blocked by the ref who just happens to step in front of my camera at, at any given moment. And that's, again, where the remotes come in handy because, you know, it's like I, even though he's in front of me, I still keep shooting because it triggers the other cameras and I get an interesting photo anyway. But you're just in this kind of like, you know, mad, you know, kind of, you know, crazy, you know, environment and it all has to kind of like, you have to be on top of everything. You just don't know when a player is going to have some facial expression or when Draymond might inadvertently kick a player in the privates. <laughs> um, you know, all that is just, it, you can't anticipate that. And so there's this, there's this real, you know, anxiety filled kind of moment about it. Um, sometimes you don't even know what you got until you go back and edit. I mean, I remember when, uh, when Curry hit, I guess it was one of the shots that put them ahead for in game six against Oklahoma City when they were they forced a game seven. Um, he ran up maybe 10 feet away and looked straight at the bench and just held up seven fingers. And I was just shooting him reacting with Andrew Bogut and didn't even realize I had the picture until all of a sudden my editor's texting me while I'm still on the court. You got that picture, you got that picture. And I was like, I think so. <laughs> because it's all happening and you're just in, you're just following the game because you have to be in that moment. Because if you stop to look, then you're missing something. And that's what, you know, a lot of young photographers do is they, they think they get something and then they put their camera down and start looking at the back of the camera. And then there's so much else developing in front of the camera that, that it, they really betray themselves. And that's one thing I, you know, I learned a long time ago. Don't look at the back of the camera because... But are you finding out that, I mean, are, are there times when it's not until after the game that you realize you got, you know, the shot of your, the year or the shot of your life? Or Well, I mean, like Christmas. You know, I didn't even know that I got the shot of um, KD coming up and blocking that shot by LeBron from overhead. I mean, I had it from my floor position, but it was kind of a boring picture. It wasn't really all that dramatic. But then when I pulled my my catwalk camera... I went straight to the back, the end of the of the of the folder, because I knew there was something. You know, that was a big important play, and sure enough, it was like there's a shot of him, very clean, just LeBron and KD, and ultimately the refs came back and said that he actually did foul LeBron. Um, but still, you have that moment. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really um, it's kind of rewarding to finally see that in the end. It's almost like when we were younger in our younger days as photographers, we wouldn't even, you know 
blank sheet of paper, you put it in the developer, and all of a sudden you see the picture emerge. It was like this magical thing. Um, so again, you have that same kind of like sensation when you're looking at something, you know, in, in those moments. I mean, same thing when when KD hit that three pointer over LeBron last year in game. I think it was game four. Four. Mm-hmm. It was, no, there was one that went up three zero. What's game three? Game three. Okay, so yeah. game three, and Le- and KD hits that three pointer over LeBron, and then you see LeBron's face as KD's reacting and you know making this great expression. You you just you can't stop and look at it until at the end, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my god, I got it, and you know you're so close to the end of the game that you can't stop and edit in the back of your camera and even you know mark your images on the back of the camera because you have no time to do that mm-hmm. because then all of a sudden you're rushing up and trying to get reaction on the court and it's a whole different you know whole different the last two minutes of the game are are always a blur yeah and and we go in and transmit and send photos back at halftime and then at the end of the game and when i go in at halftime i know like the four photos that i'm going to send without even looking so i would say almost every game i shoot i don't look at every photo i take i just go to the significant plays and i'll look around that and you know i'll know i'll know exactly what i need to send and and it just saves you a lot of time. People are always like, oh, you shot 4,000 photos? How can you possibly edit yeah. that many? It's yeah. like, well, I know exactly where the good photos are. Mm-hmm. And and so it's it's not as difficult as you would think. Now, the, the hard thing is during the playoffs, um, Russell Yip um, will come, one of our editors will come on the road, and he'll edit our photos. And it's got to be so hard for him because he's not watching the game live. He doesn't know what photos we made. So he's basically going in cold just looking at photos. Everything. And he has to try to figure out where the good photos are and <coughs> and so i tend to kind of like editing myself because i know where they are i know which photos are it's it's 10 times faster but once again we don't want to miss any action in the playoffs where during the regular season we could take half a quarter off right you want know, to be yeah. sending photos the playoffs are ho- totally different than than regular season games i mean the regular season games were easily shooting 3500 4000 images but then you up it to every moment matters in the playoffs so we're talking about 6 to 7000 images and then i you know personally then have to go through all of my remote stuff which is another you know you know 6 or 7000 images and we get to the point where we're we're so good at scanning through this stuff that we can do it in minutes you know a lot mm-hmm. of people you know they can't believe that you can look at 14,000 pictures in, in a matter of, you know, 10 or 15 minutes because they they want to look at every single image and we know exactly which ones we have to go to. Mm-hmm. I, I get the impression from all of this that um, I, I was wrong in thinking that, ah, oh, this is a fun gig. I mean, this sounds super stressful and hard, but I was right. I can tell by your voices that you love doing this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That you yeah enjoy and it's it. really because we've done it so much and I've been doing it for 30 years, it's easy. It's like the easiest thing I do because I'm so comfortable, you know, like we all know our cameras so well that we don't even think about the cameras anymore. And I think that's one of the issues with people starting out in photography is they're so worried about the technical aspects, you know, what shutter speed should I have, what f-stop, and you get so concerned about your camera, you forget to take a photo of something interesting. So, you know, you know, I can change exposure on my camera without even looking. It's like second nature. And so we can concentrate on the moment and the content. And, and it, it's, you know, it, it's, it seems easy to me just because I do it so often. But it's just like someone who does something that I find mind-boggling, they probably think the same thing. So. Yeah. Well, I wanted to get to two uh, side projects before we go. Um, Scott, and I don't, side project, is that an insult? Shooting from the Hip is your book of street photography. It came out last year, but it's more than a book. It's been a, a project of yours for years going back to Chicago. Yes, yes. So I, 
back in probably 2010, I started doing uh, street photography. It's something I'd never done earlier in my career because I really didn't see a point to it. But I kind of was getting tired of camera awareness. So going to an assignment, having people know I'm a photographer and kind of acting, you know, in a way that wasn't natural. I felt that they were hamming it up for the camera or whatever. So I started doing street photography just get these real moments and and my style is that I hold the camera down kind of near my waist so people don't know they're being photographed which is kind of stealth kind of creepy kind of weird but I also (laughs) I also think it's the best way to capture a real moment and in 2012 I changed from my big 35 millimeter to using an iPhone and I use a, a app called Hipstamatic and so everyone has an iPhone on the street so really no one knows they're being photographed I could stand in front of someone for two minutes and 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 take photos of them and they don't know so it's a collection my book shooting from the hip is a collection of black and white images from chicago san francisco and a lot of things on the road los angeles you know cleveland when i was there for the nba finals just kind of places around the u.s and um it's it's totally different than my newspaper work i almost feel like i'm rebelling against myself because in newspapers i have to get names i have to write captions i have to you know make sure everything is not too you know it's it's accessible to all people where my street photography is just i shoot it for myself even though i do share it on social media and publish books about it so i want other people to see it but i'm really kind of doing it for myself it's kind of how i stay sane and and motivated in (laughs) photography um and and I have a relationship with a publisher in Chicago who did another book of mine on a long project called Common Ground. And so, you know, it's it's really nice having, you know, someone that you can go to that you trust that gives you 100% control over what images go in the book. And, and, and plus for me, it's like having a book is like the best thing because there's a permanence to it. There's a little bit of immortality, you know, and I, I, it's just it's just it's just cool having a book. And, it seems like it, it almost like fills the spaces in between all the work that I see and the chronicle. I mean, it, it, it's almost like a continuation of your life and all the points that you don't see. And it's a different kind of photography, as you mentioned. Right. I mean, it, it's kind it, of my hobby, which is which is pathetic. <laughs> photography is my hobby, and photography is my career. But but it's it's a different, definitely a different type of photography. And uh, Carlos, I got to bring up your house. I'm sorry. <laughs> in Oakland, I ended up finding a house that um, I fell in love with, and. Um, that's my hobby. It's my uh, non-work and uh, because it's so different than anything I'm doing. And um, I found it in 2008, right around the time I had kind of come back to shooting uh, full-time. I, I had, they, you know, I had been kind of like tasked with doing a lot of video and, um, and um, came back to, you know, shooting stills and was, you know, kind of looking at something a little bit, you know, you know, finding my own place. And, um, you know, I love craftsman homes and ended up finding one that was falling apart. And when I say falling apart, it was, you know, literally rotted on one side. It was three inches lower, but um, had to fix it up and resurrect it. And that's what I've been doing. I mean, and it it really appeals to my technical mind because I I studied engineering for three and a half years before I switched back to journalism and was uh, looking at maybe going into architecture. Um, So it just really appealed to me to kind of have a a, a place where I could, like, you know, remove myself from the daily journalism thing. And there's nothing more satisfying than demolition. I mean, when, you're having, <laughs> uh, when you have, uh, you know, stressful days at, at the job or when something crazy happens, um, you just want to go someplace where you're not even thinking about 
about the, the work you've done um, or things that upset you or the anxiety related to, you know, the, the newspaper business was changing so much in those few years that yeah. <clears throat> this was something a little bit more, you know, removed from that. But um, I will I will admit um, I ended up uh, doing a lot of remote stuff, cameras, time lapses of me building and uh, restoring this thing. And I actually have um, time lapse videos when I, you know, was um, building structure of, a, of an addition I was doing. I put a camera up on the roof when I was redoing the roof. I mean, just it's just fun stuff for me to do because yeah. it's, you know, still there's there's all this interest from people here who wanted to see what I was doing. But um it's been it's been kind of an interesting process because I'm really dedicated to doing it all by hand and doing it myself. So it's been it's been about eight years, nine years, minus one year of having to cover all the playoffs between the Giants and the uh, and the Warriors. I think I've lost a year of time from just being on the road with those guys. Well, it looks great. I saw Thank your you. latest photos, that. and I'm always super impressed. And uh, did yeah. I tell you I push a button on a phone? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I want to thank you guys so much for coming in. Um, I really admire your work. And I know, like, I, I asked that 25-year question, and it was probably my worst question. But I was thinking about it, like, I'm going to remember these photos and these moments as almost like part of the whole experience as a fan. And, you know, one of my favorite of yours, Scott, is I, I think it was against OKC where um, – Warriors are on an incredible comeback and Draymond's out of his head and jumping out of bounds into a uh, Jordan jump man while shooting a three that was very vital to that game. And I mean, one of my favorite photos ever, and I'm always going to remember it. And Carlos, recently you shot, I believe it was yours, um, where uh, I loved it. LeBron looking sad while the Warriors are celebrating, yeah. like mm-hmm. as a uh, yeah, two a, guys were high fiving in the foreground, in the foreground, and they're kind of blurred, and LeBron just looking like I want LeBron to look as a Warriors <laughs> fan. It's all for fun, but um, I just love that shot. I'm never, I'm never going to forget it. So. I really appreciate you guys coming in. Oh, it's been and, great. Uh, yeah. And if I just going to add one thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. For me as somebody who grew, who grew up here and knows how much, you know, the fans love these teams and really, you know, get, you know, they get so, you know, emotional about their team winning and losing. I mean, it feels good for me as a as somebody who grew up here as a member of this community to kind of give them back something like that. I mean, I still get compliments from pictures that I took of the Giants' first championship. I mean, when, when Tim Lincecum jumped on his teammates' shoulders. Yeah. You know, people still remember that picture, and they still, you know, talk to me about the pictures of KD and Steph. And, you know, uh, one of my former bosses, actually, at, a, at my first paper, he actually told me he took that picture of Tim Lincecum on his teammates' shoulders and put it in his father's um, crypt with his ashes because wow. it meant so much. They had gone to so many Giants games as a, you know, when he was a kid that his father never saw a championship and for me to kind of like be able to give something back to the fans who are really incredibly dedicated through some terrible years <laughs> to give them something back is really meaningful to yeah, me. Yeah, there's nothing cooler than seeing a fan wearing a t-shirt that yeah. has your front page on it. Like, yeah. That's, you know, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, thank you guys. Carlos Gonzalez, Scott Strazante, thank you for coming to the big event. All right. And uh, now I'm going to know a little bit more about the photos you're shooting. So <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> thanks, Peter. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Peter.
You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guests, Scott Strazante and Carlos Gonzalez. See all their superb work photographing the Warriors and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Executive producer is Fernando Diaz, and our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community. San Francisco Chronicle podcasts are on iTunes and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.